So we are in 1 Corinthians, traveling through this book. The church at Corinth, you already know, it's both the best of churches and it's the worst of churches, all kind of wrapped up in one. They're excited about Jesus. They want to be full of God's spirit. They want to be moving in their gifts, moving in the power of God's spirit. They're happy to be saved, but they're also really sinful. And they're really divisive. And they're really critical. And they're really finicky, right? They go and they go to church and go to these long meetings where they praise and speak in tongues. And then they go to the bar and get drunk. And there's like this, discontinuity in them, right? Best and the worst, back and forth. They're divided over pastors. He's my favorite pastor. I don't like him. I like Apollos. I don't like Apollos. I like Peter. I don't like either of those guys. I like Paul, right? They're just, they're divided up. That's what they're doing. So chapter four, here's what 1 Corinthians does on that. You're divided over ministers. You're divided over this. Chapter four is, God's word saying, okay, here's how you measure a minister. You guys are all divided up. This guy's my favorite, that guy's my favorite. I don't like him, I don't like what he does there. Chapter four is, here is actually the measurements of a minister of Jesus Christ. Here's how to look, here's how to evaluate. So if you're gonna evaluate a pastor, what would you do? What's your criteria? Many years ago, the Hartford Institute of Religious Studies did a massive survey in America, and they asked that question. If you're looking for a new pastor, what's your criteria? Guess what number one and number two were? Knowing God's word, loving people, nope. Funny and under 40. That was it, right? Like immediately strike two, right? Strike one, strike two, you're out. Like nothing at all biblical. What we're looking for is that. We want a hip, cool pastor that dresses like he's 14. That's what we want. We want a politician that shakes everybody's hands and kisses everybody's baby, and right? We all have these criteria. <laughs> I remember early at Edgewater, we were only months old and I had on two separate occasions, within a couple of weeks of each other, a guy came up to me and he said, first guy was like this, uh, you know what I really like in pastors? I'm like, I don't know, but you're gonna tell me. He goes, I really like it that when they preach, they look at me and they make eye contact. I'm like, okay, every time I talk about sin, I'm looking at you then. <laughs> I'm like, I don't like doing that because I don't wanna see this. Like, huh. What's that? Or, it's better just to float over the top of everybody's head and act like everyone's doing fine, right? And then the second guy, just like a, two weeks after that, he's like, you know what I really like in my pastor? I'm like, for him to look at you in the eye? <laughs> no, I like a man's man. I want a guy that, that goes out and shoots guns and hunts, and I want a pastor that I could be in the wilderness with. I'm like, if you knew me well, you would not want to be in the wilderness with me because we'll die, that's what will happen. I'm not very good at planning. So <laughs> you don't wanna be in the wilderness with me, right? So it's like in the church, part of our pastimes are judging pastors. I do it, right? I don't like this guy, I like that guy. We all have our preferences. 
But at the end of the day, we probably better look at the Bible and see what does it have to say? What are the criteria for measuring a pastor according to scripture? And really, all of us are ministers in different capacities in our families, in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces. We're all ministers, every single one of us. So these should apply not just to me or to people on staff, but they apply to us all. And Paul gives really four criteria. He says, number one, they need to be faithful. Number two, they need to be first. Number three, they need to be fair and balanced. And then number four, they need to be fatherly. And that's what we're gonna look at. So let's jump in. Verse one, 1 Corinthians chapter four. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Number one measurement, Paul says, it's required. It's not recommended. It's not a good idea. Hey, it's third on the list. Paul puts it number one on the list. It's required of pastors, stewards, people that are stewarding, stewarding the things of God, that they be found faithful. And then Paul says this, listen, I could care less if you're judging me. I can care less what your criteria are, right? I do not care. Here's why. Because you get two Christians together and you'll get four opinions. That's why. It's been said the only difference between a terrorist and a Christian is you can negotiate with a terrorist, right? And part of that is a very healthy thing in believers, that we have these lines in the sand and we understand how important it is and you're not gonna move us off those lines. But sometimes we make too many lines in the sand and we fight over things that do not matter. And that's what Paul's saying right here. Like, listen, I, I, I know you're dug in, I know that, but... Listen, that doesn't matter. That's what Paul's saying. So you judging me, yeah, it doesn't matter. And I learned very early on at Edgewater, and it was a hard lesson for me. I'm not gonna please everybody. Because you want to please everybody. You want people to be happy with you, right? Everyone does. Whatever job you're doing, there is an innate thing in us. We want people to like us. We want people to say, hey man, that was good, thank you. But I learned very early on, guess what? I will not please everybody. And I used to get these emails from people and they would, I would preach on a message and Monday I would get this 
email from people and they would say, I don't think you're right on that. And then they would send me a link to their favorite pastor preaching on the same thing. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> and these are national pastors, like churches of 10,000 people and international, everybody knows them. And in the early stages, I'd be like, ah, oh, man, oh. And after a while, this is what I started doing. I'd listen to it. And then I'd email that person back and I'd just write this. Hey, listen to it. And I liked my sermon better. <laughs> just a little needle at them. Oh, okay. They're like, what? That guy's huge. You're nothing. Yep, true. <laughs> you got to get over it. Like, okay, you're not going to please everybody. So Paul says, verse three, it's a very small, like, the Greek there, we would say like it's an electron, like the smallest measurement you could make. That's how small your judgment is of me. Now, why does he say that? Because Jesus is gonna judge me. I don't care about your judgments of me. Jesus is my judge and I'm called to be faithful to him. And that's what matters. How brilliant is that? How solid is that, right? People's opinions, they shift every day. People like it, people don't like it. People love that one, hated that one, all right? It's, you're all over the place. How solid is Jesus? I love that. From this verse, I have this saying, and I wrote it down years and years and years ago, and it's this. I am more afraid of Jesus than being the pastor of a small church. So I'm gonna speak what Jesus puts on my heart. And if people like it, great. And if people don't, I'm still faithful to Jesus. And I pray and I think very hard and I say, he's got to be what's most important to me. I'm staying faithful to his call, faithful to him. That's the only thing I can stay faithful to, right? That's what Paul's saying right here. And we're all called in that, well, how do you stay faithful to Jesus? Right here. It's God's word. Jesus is the logos. He is the word become incarnate. And every single one of us can stay faithful to the scriptures. So today there's like this debate, like what do you know what's right or wrong? Abortion, how do you know abortion is right or wrong? Do we go to culture? Do we go to our government? Because our government says it's all right. Oregon, like, gonna fly people here, pay for them. How do we determine if abortion is right or wrong? Psalm 139. You are fearfully and wonderfully made that God put all your members together while you were still in your mother's womb. He counted up all your things and he put them into a book. What would that book be? How about your DNA? That's 3,000 years before we knew about DNA. And there's this book of all of our members. How brilliant is that? That's why, because throughout scripture, there is this constant that the person begins in the womb. John the Baptist leaps in the womb of his mother when she meets Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? In the womb. It says that he was full of God's spirit in the womb, that's personhood, in the womb. That's how you decide. You stay faithful to the scripture. How do we determine 
the way of salvation is that many roads lead up, choose your path, be sincere, or is Jesus the way and the truth and the life and no one gets to the Father but by him? If I'm saying faithful to the scripture, I say, that's the way. Marriage, what's marriage? We're redefining it all the time right now. It's in flux right now, right? What is marriage? Is marriage just two people that love each other or three people that love each other or three creatures that love each other, right? What's it going, where's the line gonna stop? Because it's not gonna stop. It's already being moving towards polygamy. That's the next thing. And I'll tell you what, if there's ammunition that people have on polygamy, isn't it the Old Testament? Solomon, how many wives did he have? Mm, right? So how are you going to define it? You go back to the beginning, back to God's design, to Genesis chapter two. One man, one woman, one life forever. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? So we got to stay faithful to scripture. We come back to this right here. And we're going to be judged by the world. And you're either going to decide that's really important, the opinion of the world, or like Paul, you're going to say, I don't care what court it's in. It doesn't matter. I am staying faithful to my Savior, Jesus Christ. And every other opinion bows to him. And that's the only stability there is. And I would say, on that point, when I talk to unbelievers, I get off of those subjects as quick as possible because they're not the deep end. Do you know that? I get to one thing as quick as I can. And I learned this by watching Larry King live. Remember him? <laughs> so years ago, I bet it's 15 years now, Larry King had on his show this group of pastors and he was throwing these questions at them. It was Brian McLaren, super progressive Christian. It was Tim and Bev LaHaye, hyper-conservative Christians. It was T.D. Jakes and then it was Franklin Graham. And Franklin Graham happened to be in studio with Larry King. The other ones were kind of videoed in. And so he starts just throwing these questions at him. And it comes to homosexuality. And so Brian McLaren, his answer was this. I can't answer that, Tim. Or I can't answer that, Larry, without offending somebody that I love. Okay, right? Just, I'm not even batting, right? Tim and Bev LaHaye, pretty harsh. I have to admit, like, mm, could have flexed a little bit on that. But then Franklin Graham got up and had his chance. And he said, you know, Larry, here's what the thing is. We're all sinners. Every single one of us. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a savior. And Jesus is that savior. And Jesus' salvation is afforded to anyone. There's nobody outside of Jesus' grace given to all of us. And all you have to do, Larry, is believe in your heart that he is the Lord, that he is the savior, that he is the king, and confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead. Doesn't matter what you've done, and you shall be saved. Larry, have you done that? And Larry just goes, next question. <laughs> I went, that was brilliant. That's the deep end, right? So yet we're gonna have to have our lines in the sand, no doubt. But with unbelievers, I move to Jesus as quick as possible because everything else is a distraction. It's just like Franklin Graham did, brilliantly 
beautiful. You and I are called to be faithful. We're called. And you can't do that by licking your finger and putting it up in the political winds today. You've got to say, I'm standing firm on scripture. I'm trusting Jesus and him alone. That's number one qualification for a minister of Jesus Christ. Number two, you gotta be first. Verse six, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. This whole dilemma that was happening there. I like this guy better. I don't like black. I don't like how he, he looks at me in the eye. He's a man's man, whatever it is. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You gotta be faithful, number two. You gotta be first. Paul says this. What I'm talking to you guys about, Apollos and I, the guys that you're dividing over, we've already applied this to us, right? That's what he's saying. And we know this. Whatever gift we might have to teach the Bible or to know scripture or to communicate truth, it was given to us by Jesus, right? What do you have that wasn't given to you? It was all a gift. So why are you boasting about something? Why are you getting all divided over it? That's what he's saying. Don't brag, don't divide up. So Paul says, everything that I'm telling you about unity instead of division, Apollos and I have applied to us first. I love that. Because you can't lead where you have not been. You can't lead people from behind, right? If you are going to lead, then you're gonna say, I need to do this first. I need to be someone that's doing these things before I start telling other people to do them. That's what Paul's saying right here. Brilliant. You can't lead where you haven't gone. And maybe the best example of this, it's the first two kings of Israel. Saul, first king of Israel, head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a massive man in Israel goes to this battle, an even bigger man is in this battle. And his name is Goliath. And Goliath is, hey, Israelites, send out your champion. Who should have gone out and fought Goliath? Their tallest dude. What does he do? He hides in his tent. He doesn't even come out, right? And because Saul hides in his tent, what does everybody else do? They hide in their tent. Our leader is afraid of him. He's head and shoulders taller than me. Man, if he's not gonna do it, I'm not doing it. And then after day, after day, after day, after month and 10 days of this, who shows up? 16, 17 year old kid. 
he hears the taunts of Goliath, and what does he say? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares defy the armies of the living God? Who's gonna take this reproach away from Israel? Give me my slingshot. And he goes out, kills Goliath. Guess what some of his men go do? They kill giants too. Read second, first, second, second Samuel 23, first Chronicles 16. It's the recounting of the mighty men of Israel, of David, excuse me, and guess what some of them do? They kill giants because their leader killed giants. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, what do you want your kids and grandkids doing? You can't lead from behind. You gotta apply it first. You gotta start living it out. Okay, what am I doing? How am I living? Am I doing it first? When I read the Bible and I prepare a message, one of the things that I have disciplined myself to do is this, is it I? Is what I'm talking about a problem? Is it me? Or is what I'm asking people to do? Am I applying that to myself first? I always do that. I always do that. I learned it at the Gospel Rescue Mission. So I started teaching there, like in 1995, 96. Had no clue how to teach the Bible, none whatsoever. But they're a captive audience. They can't eat until after you've taught, right? So it was quite a fun time, I'll tell you what. First Tuesday of the month, I'd go in there and I would try to teach the Bible. And um, I'd gone in like three months in a row. And after it, this guy grabs me and he goes, hey, I like how you preach. I said, wow, 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 thank you. Well, okay, that's great. Why? He goes, because when you talk about sin, you don't say you, you say we. I'm beginning to think that you are not a fake. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> I hope I'm not a fake either, right? And from that point on, that went deep in my heart. When you talk about sin, Matt, say we. Include yourself because you're a sinner too. Apply it to yourself. Make sure you're not being a fake, acting like you're something else up here. Apply it to yourself first. That's what faithful ministers do. They're faithful and they say me first. Work on me first. I'm not gonna point out all the problems in other people. I wanna look at the mirror in my own heart first and then take what I've applied to me and help people walk it out. Number three, be fair and balanced. One of my favorite sections of scripture. Already, you have all that you want, verse six. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. 
when slandered we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. I love that. Thirdly, be fair and balanced. What I love right here is what, what is Paul doing? He's making fun of them. Is he not? This is called sarcasm. <laughs> you guys are kings. You've arrived, right? You're it, man. You're awesome. You are the best on earth. He leads with levity. I love that, right? We're weak, but you're strong. You guys are honored, we're not. You guys are wise and we're just fools. What is he doing? He is making fun of them. That's what he's doing. He's 100% making fun of them. And it's funny, right? I think people that get offended really easily take themselves too seriously. Paul does not. Paul uses sarcasm, satire, mocking right here. I think there are things that you just gotta mock. And mocking is a really good tool. I was just reading, and I could not believe this, this survey taken at Stanford University. Where's Stanford ranked in top universities? Well, it's gotta be top 10, right? Maybe top five, way up there. And they surveyed these students and they found this. They said, according to these students, that it was more dangerous to ride a bicycle without a mask on, you know, like for COVID, without a mask on versus riding a bicycle without a helmet on. I just went, this is where the smart students go. Somebody has to mock them, right? Because they're gonna keep doing this. It's ridiculous. It's insanity. Or more seriously, 10 years ago when I'd have conversations with people on abortion that were not believers, they would tell me this. They would say, Matt, you can't have an opinion on abortion because you're a, a man. But today, guess what? <laughs> Men can have babies. Ah, <laughs> right? You gotta mock that. I can now because men can have babies, right? I mean, mocking is one of the most powerful weapons ever. Go on healthline.com and type in there, can men have babies? It will give you this answer. Yes, men can have babies. And it happens more often than you think. Someone needs to mock that, right? Because it's ridiculous now. Mocking is a powerful, incredible, awesome weapon. And Paul is using humor right here. And it's funny. And the reason why mocking is funny is always because of its proximity to the truth, is it not? That's what makes it funny. Right? It's that, hey, you can't talk because you're a man. Oh, wait, men can have babies. Now I can talk. I can have an opinion on abortion, right? It's the proximity to the truth that makes it so funny. It's always that way. And so Paul here is just mocking them. Corinth, you're the best, man. Best church around. You're amazing. You guys are kings, wise, incredible. And I'm the scum of the earth, <laughs> right? This is opposite day. And there's this idea now today that like certain things are off limits. And I, and I always think like, to me, that's, that is the most dangerous idea of all. Because if something, a person or a place is off limits, what does that mean? At its core, it means this. I'm above them. It's called punching down. 
I can't mock them, why? Because I'm above them. That's the most arrogant thing ever, right? I can't talk about that group or that thing, why? Because I'm above them, I'm more important to them. What? Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, we're all the same. There's no levels here. And humor, to me, is one of the most important things that actually balances things out really, really well, right? That's fair and balanced. Paul's not like, well, you know, I shouldn't make fun of them. You know, someone might get offended there. No, he's like, no. And he's the all-star of Christian faith, and he calls himself the scum of the earth. I love that. Like, the scum of the earth there, this is what it is in the Greek. It is what is left on a sheet after a person has died from the plague. So just imagine that. 2,000 years ago, hot, sticky, Mediterranean day. Guy has the plague. He dies. His body is there. They pick up his body. Whatever is left there, Paul says, that's what I am. Right? That's funny. It's funny. You can laugh. If you're going to lead your home, if you're going to lead your business, if you're going to lead a church, have fun. Laugh. Right? Like, it's the best thing in the world. That's what Paul is doing here. People take themselves way too seriously. Paul's like, I'm not gonna take myself seriously. I'm gonna get out there. I'm gonna mock these guys. There's a book, it's called God Mocks. And it's a guy, all he did was go through the prophets and show like one of the best tools the prophets ever had was mocking Israel for their inconsistencies, right? You can't talk about abortion because you're a man. Wait a second, men can have babies. Like it's that whole thing and it's all through the prophets because God knows how powerful that is. It exposes things in a way that nothing else can. You're like, oh, Scientific America found this, that sarcasm and mocking makes people think much more deeply about something than just giving them the information. Because why? Because it cuts really good. It's like, oh, whoa, hold on a second. That's what happens with mocking. And that's what Paul is doing right here. Early on in this letter, I want you guys to get this. I want you to see this. You guys are arrogant. So I'm leading with some levity because you need it. Humor is so important. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors from 100 years ago, he said this, humor slips under the door while seriousness is still fumbling with the handle. Don't you know that? Like someone will say something funny and then they'll, they'll, it's like this, make people laugh and when their mouth is open, stuff truth in it. That's what you do. It's been my motto as much as I can. Use that, use those things, because that's how we learn. We learn well. And what I'm noticing today is that comedy and truth are like intertwined, and they're under fire today. And when we start doing that, and comedy might seem like a a separate issue, Paul's using it right here. When you start doing that, look out. When we start making certain things hate speech that are not hate speech, all we do is lower hate speech. And there is real hate speech that's really bad. You should never lower hate speech. Hate speech should have a definition, and truth is not hate speech. But we're doing something now to language that is completely wrong. And it's actually making hate speech less hateful because you've lowered the bar of what it means to be hate speech. Hate speech should be things that harm people, anti-Semitism, racism, those things. Yes, not truth that people culturally don't agree with today. So I just love this section for me. I love it. Paul uses sarcasm to get the people at Corinth 
to think accurately about what they're saying. Because this is what they're saying. We know it all, we're wise, we're kings, we're on it. So Paul's like, okay then, let's do that. And you get to 2 Corinthians and guess what? They've changed because that's the power of sarcasm. They're like, ooh, when you put it like that, oh, man, I better think a little bit better. And they do, it's brilliant. So you gotta be faithful. You gotta apply your, to your first, first to yourself. You gotta be fair and balanced, use humor at the right time. And then you gotta be fatherly. Listen to what Paul says. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I weren't coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people. That's who he's mocking right above. But their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? With love and a spirit of gentleness. Fourthly, if you're gonna lead as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, be fatherly. And here's what I mean. Number one, Paul says, verse 14, I don't write these things. What he just written above, the mocking sarcasm. I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to shape you into something. I'm trying to warn you of a danger. Fathers, number one, have no shame. You don't shame your kids. You don't shame those you're trying to help because it doesn't help. So years and years and years ago, I saw this go south. Charity's roots are Monterey. And so we would go down to Monterey. And in Monterey, there's the best park in the world. Anyone know what it's called? Yes! Woohoo! It is the coolest park in the world. So whenever we went to Monterey, we had little kids at them. It was just Carissa and Isabella. We'd go to Mon They would look forward to it like Disneyland. So we go to Dennis the Menace Park. We're there one day, beautiful Monterey day. Brilliant, 75 degrees, blue sky, just unbelievable day, right? Everyone's there, big packed out crowd there. And this, we see this crew come, there's this car pulls up and it's kind of a little bit of a beater, pulls up and then just, it pukes out five children and a mom. Just, they come out, right? And the kids go running and screaming into the park, acting like kids. Can you believe it, right? So one of them is about nine years old. She's a girl. And you're kind of, I'm kind of watching this like, oh, okay. And then I, I, I stopped watching it. Well, turns out she had ran over to these really cool slides. There's two of them. And they kind of, they're the old stainless steel ones where you could fly on them. And they're long, right? Do a little bit of hump, then they go down. And she decides she's not gonna walk up the steps. She's gonna go up the slide. But there's a lot of people there. So she starts going up the slide and guess what? It stops everybody. So like, eh, kids are stopped in the middle of the slide. She's trying to go up it. Parents are like, hey, what are you doing, sweetie? Well, the mom notices this. Guess what she does? 
Jackie! Across the whole park. Jackie, get off that slide. And she is like just marching toward that slide where you're like, oh no, she's gonna spank that child. And I'm thinking this is California. I may be called the witness. I'm not even gonna watch it. Like, nope, I'm gonna look away. I heard a sound judge, that's all I heard. I don't know what happened over there, right? So she's just screaming at this child. The whole part just goes, Arr! like kids sucking binkies were like. <laughs> People on the swings, the swings like froze in midair like, ah, cause she is unglued. I'm gonna put you in that car and we're gonna drive an hour back home right now if you don't get off that slide. And that kid just goes, shriveled and walked over and sat on a bench for I don't know how long. Why? Because she was shamed. Shame doesn't get you what you want. So Paul says, I don't want to shame you. All right? The Bible says this over and over. If you got an ought with a brother or sister, you go to them privately. You don't shout it at the park. You don't talk to somebody else about it. It's Matthew 18. You go to them one-on-one, -on -one, and you try to win them back. And if that doesn't work, you tell one other person, maybe a mutual friend, and then you take the mutual friend with you. You don't shout at the park. You don't shout at it in church. You don't talk to anybody else about it. You keep it as tightly contained as possible, or what happens is people get shamed. And there's divisions. And people's heads are down. And they're broken by it. You gotta be very, very careful about that. So fathers, don't shame. Number two, fathers, steer the ship. Paul says this. I urge you then, be imitators of me. My favorite analogy of this came from a book called Boys by William Busey. And he says, listen, dads, your kids are gonna do some crazy things. They're just gonna do it. He says, here's what you need to be. Here's the analogy to keep in your head. He said, it's like you are driving the boat, the ski boat. Your job is to have a destination have things that you say, these are non-negotiables, and you keep that boat going in the same direction. Your kids are like skiers on the back. They're gonna go out to the side, and they're gonna go this way and this way, and they're gonna try to get maybe a little far away from you. But guess what? If you keep the boat going in the same direction, what happens to your kids? They end up in the same direction too. They might go a little sideways and have a wreck here or there, but if you keep your same direction, you pull your kids in the right direction. That's what Paul's saying, right? It's for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Son, daughter, we're going to church. I don't wanna go to church, it doesn't matter. For me and my house, I wanna serve the Lord. Hey, son, daughter, we don't talk like that in my house, but I want to, you don't talk like that. It's, hey, you keep the boat. These are our non-negotiables, and we're keeping the boat going this direction, day after day, week after week, month after month, 18 years in a row. This is our direction, you steer the boat. That's what fathers do. And number three, you walk it. Notice what Paul says over and over. I want you to remind you of my ways as I teach them. I will find out if it's talk or power. He says that twice. Fathers, walk it. We have our ways above our words. Dad should have way more bite than they do bark. Does that make sense? Like we shouldn't be barking all the time at our kids. We should have way more bite that they know I'm not crossing dad. He doesn't talk a lot, he doesn't need to. 
because he has bite. What he says, he follows through on. Man, we need so much of that. That our walk is one that is consistent. I didn't grow up with a dad. Didn't have those models. But I'll tell you what, I had some great fill-ins. Went and lived with Mark Scudstat in his basement. I learned from Mark Scudstat that if you're there for more than a day, Jenny, his daughter, will give you a nickname. Nick Good, the basement dude. Matt Matt, the basement rat, right? You're just gonna get a name. It's that simple. And I was there for a year, so I got a name and a shirt. I learned from Mark that Smucker's jelly goes good on anything. Try it on a hot dog, it's so good, right? Like it does, it actually does go good. He's right. But what I saw was a godly family functioning. And I'm so thankful for that time. I got to go to Vanuatu where I hung out with Dave Corson, just a great leader. And I saw something with Dave that I'll never forget. He treated people as individuals. There was a group, there was lots of people, there's lots of students, but you know what? He didn't make these blanket rules that, that didn't fit everybody. He realized where people were at in their walk, in their maturity, in their life, that some of them had great advantages and some of them did not. So he dealt with people as individuals. And I thought, man, that's the way to do it. Don't make these blanket statements that some people can't fit in. Know people that you're leading. Know them well enough to say, hey, this fits you better. And I'm okay with that. He's just a great leader. I got to hang out for a year with Jim Wright in the school ministry. I learned some very good things from Jim Wright. He had this saying, if the bus is moving, be on it. And that's taught me personal responsibility. I'm not going to come get you. I'm not going to come find you. If the bus is moving, you should be on it, right? And I found that out when I was in Mexico, middle of Mexico, in the middle of nowhere, the bus was moving, and guess what? I was not on it, and I started running very quickly because I did not want to be left in the middle of Mexico. Personal responsibility. Like, we need these kind of people around us, father figures that just walk out life well. Oh, that's how you do it. Oh, how brilliant is that? It's awesome. That's what dads do. And then lastly, and maybe most difficult, but maybe most important this day we live, be willing to discipline. Look at verse 21. What do you wish? I think every parent should have this. They should have it underlined and circled. Son, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? What do you want, son? Do you want the carrot or do you want the stick? And dads have to make that decision. We gotta have some bite to us. Do you want the rod or do you want gentleness? Do you want the carrot or do you want the stick? I prefer the carrot, right? I love carrots, totally. If we can get this done by positive, let's do it by positive, 100%. But at some point, rebellion is bound in the heart of a child, okay? You don't want that anymore. And as father figures, mother figures can just go as well in here. We gotta be willing to say, listen, you push too far, discipline. Church has to do that as well. We've had some church discipline things in the last couple months that I've had to be involved with where you push too far. You can't do that here. We can't have that going on. And we had to say, you know what? You're welcome to attend, but you can't lead here anymore. And that's a difficult thing. I don't like doing that, but guess what? You gotta do it. At some point you have to say, you push too far. You can't do that anymore. 
We've asked you, we've tried to talk to you, we've tried to change things, we've tried to modify things, but we can't. And dads have to say, okay, okay. So this is how you measure a minister, faithful. First, fair and balanced and fatherly. May we take from this what we need and live it. So Jesus, thank you for Paul. Thank you for the good and the bad that he went through. The great churches like Philippi and the churches like Corinth to help us as we walk out today our faith because we'll fly between Philippi and Corinth in our own lives. And we need both of those as bumpers and guides for us to bring us to our ultimate destination. So guide us today. May we be faithful. May we be applying things to ourselves first. May we be fair and balanced, using humor. May we have fun and laugh. May we be able to laugh at ourselves. That's how you're secure. And may we be fatherly slash motherly in the best ways, like Paul was, walking it, not talking it being willing to do whatever is necessary for what each person needed in that moment because he loved them. So help us. Fill us with your spirit even tonight. Give us our daily bread to walk out 1 Corinthians 4 as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. And we pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.